This is Chapter 189 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, a creepy episodic serial from Lisa Unger that you could easily binge in one sitting. Lawyer turned novelist Caitlin Wehrer flips the traditional crime thriller script in her debut, The Damage. Then we go back to school with Shakespearean professor Mary Bly, whose new book will have you thinking about Romeo and Juliet in a new light. Author Lisa Unger has a thing for houses. They come up again and again in her writings, and her latest work is no exception. At the center of her four-part serial, House of Crows, stands Merle House, an old and super creepy mansion that's the site of a traumatic event experienced by four teenaged friends. That quartet is now all grown up, and for one reason or another, they find themselves back at the house where they have to come face to face with their past. So as a reader, I for one think the worst part about a series is having to wait for the next installment. But that's totally not the case with House of Crows because all of the digital and audiobooks were released all at the same time on Amazon. Why don't you tell readers what they can expect? I feel the same way. I'm sort of a binge watcher listener myself. So um, I'm also happy that they all four stories sort of came out at the same time. So House of Crows is about four friends who have shared a very dark experience in their past, in their childhood, and they've all sort of left that place and that experience and constructed lives um, around trying to understand what happened to them, all in very different ways. Claire is a psychiatrist, and Mason is searching for like some sort of spiritual redemption, and Ian is a, a ghost hunter slash house energy clearer, and of course, Matthew, worst of all, is a writer and a professor. And they're all sort of digging into this this past in in very different ways, and um, and um, each story is a deep dive into each character and what their relationship is to Myrtle House and the demons that they have to face down within and without when they all return in the fourth story. Now you've called this collection an ode to Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. What was it about that story that inspired you? I mean, it's sort of an iconic novel, and it's something that I've read a number of times over my life. And, you know, it's one of those books, probably we all have them, where, you know, every time you go back, it's a little bit different. You know, you bring a different perspective and a different piece of yourself to the story every every time at different ages. And, you know, for me, what always kind of, what I always kind of walked away from was the sense of, like, not really understanding what happened there and how Hill House only seemed to have as much power as it was given and that everybody like sort of brought their various different darknesses to Hill House and how Hill House used that to manipulate them. So I took away from that this idea of haunting as being something very personal, almost like a virus that you can catch. And like maybe you have immunity to it or you don't. And so it was like that kind of idea that um, that the haunting entity was not necessarily, you know, something separate from you, but something that was intimately connected to your own personal darkness. I have to say your your haunting entity in your book really creeps me out. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> and 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 as I'm reading it, like I was, I uh, reading it on the subway, and I was so engrossed, almost missed my stop. But there, you know, there's this idea too that everybody experiences, uh, like as you were saying, and and internalizes and works through trauma. Whether it's the yeah. same kind of shared trauma, but everybody kind of the aftermath affects everyone differently. Right. And that's true of trauma in general. You know, people can, you know, even if you if you look to family abuse, like, you know, siblings are all going to experience abuse differently. They're all going to take different pieces away. They're all going to have different memories of what happened. You know, like you could go up in the same house with somebody and feel that you were, you know, that you were terribly abused and your other sibling may feel that that he or she wasn't at all. And so like we all have this different reaction to the tra- to the traumas what one person finds, you know, devastating another person barely even notices. And so I'm always interested in that as well like what we bring what pieces we bring to these, you know, horrible events whether it be trauma or, you know, um or 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 anything that's dark or negative what we bring to it and what we take away is very endemic to who we are as people. Now, because there is a spooky, scary house at the at the core of your of your collection here, do you have your own like spooky house story? <laughs> I do. I have you know I've I have this kind of really deep relationship with structures. Um, I have this you know like these all my memories are tied in very, and I think probably all of our memories are very tied into the places where where they occurred. You know, like I have a very strong memory of like my grandmother's townhouse in Bay Ridge or, you know, the place where I lived in Long Valley, New Jersey, or even some of the older houses that I had occasion to visit when I lived in the UK as as a young kid. Um, So I feel like there's this kind of relationship that I have with structures and this idea of like the house kind of you know, comes up again and again in my work. Like it's either a a broken down house or a house that needs healing or a house that needs sort of restoration. So it's kind of like something that that comes up again and again. But, you know, House of Crows and this idea of like the haunted house that, um, you know, it kind of took root for me when we first moved into the place where we're living now. We, you know, we live in a, a townhome and it's new. I mean, it's newly constructed, right? So, you'd think there was like no, you know, like sort of no chance of it ever being haunted or (laughs) anything going on with it. And I felt like, you know, when we sold our house and we were moving into this place, there were all these obstacles that kept coming up, right? All these barriers to like getting to the house. And like the move itself was like very, very stressful. And, you know, I kind of pay attention to stuff like that. And I was thinking to myself at the time, like, oh my gosh, you know, like, should we not be moving here? Is there like something wrong, like some problem? And, uh, and that first night that we were in the house, um, I was unpacking stuff in the bathroom and I cut my finger really, really deeply. And all this blood kind of went into the sink and like circled the drain. And it was like just this really big visual, of, like lots of blood in this white sink. And I was like, oh, my God, like if this house is haunted, like that's exactly what it would do. Like that would be the first thing that it would want would be to drink my blood. It needs a sacrifice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that kind of idea and that image saved me, even though our our house is definitely not haunted. It it has like all these kind of weird noises and like some of it and some of those like the ghost chair that wound up in, in House of Crows is actually truthful to stuff that we experience in our in our new house. 
I think everyone who's who's moved around a bit probably has a story like that. And also, you know, it's just the newness of being in a new place where every right. every noise is going to be strange, right? Right, exactly. Everything is new and everything is, you know, and you kind of and you kind of think like, you know, it was like the, that whole idea of, you know, the, the movies, the par- paranormal or whatever it was, where it was like, you know, almost like a faux reality where they were like sort of setting up the camera to, you know, to tape this haunting. And it was like in these very like modern places, right? Like where you would never think, you know, like you always kind of in your mind um, imagine, you know, these sort of big rundown places, like those are the places not that are haunted, not like these new construction homes or whatever. And so it was just kind of an interesting vision of that, like a modern haunting kind of a thing. Now, this might seem like a silly question, but to get the full effect of this collection of stories, readers should read them in order, right? Book one, two, three, four. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it is really a serial anthology of short stories. So each story has its own individual arc. Each story has like a little bit of completeness as far as the character is concerned and what that particular character's journey is. But um, the 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 larger arc takes place over the four stories. So for the richest experience, I would suggest strongly that you start at book one and read all the way through. And it shouldn't be too much of a hardship since they, like you say, they're all out there. Um, and even though they, you know, each of them ends with a little bit of a cliffhanger, it's not like you have to wait another week or month for the next installment. Did you like writing a four-part serial like this, the like short story version as opposed to a novel? Over the last few years, I've really fallen in love with the short story as a form. I've always written short stories, but there was something about the last few, the Sleep Tight Motel, um, which uh, was nominated for an Edgar, and then Let Her Be, which was uh, selected for the um, Best American Mystery and Suspense anthology. Um, these are, were both uh, published by Amazon Original Stories over the last couple of years. And like in, in, in having, you know, the, the, the opportunity to sort of explore short fiction, um, I just kind of fell in love with the form in a new way. And so it was a really interesting concept for me to think about like, okay, here is a serial collection of short stories where each story builds on the next. It's not exactly a novel. It's not exactly a short story anthology, but it's like kind of a hybrid of those things, which is interesting. And I, I knew that I wanted to be able to explore each character, like that each story could be a deep dive into character, which for me is, you know, everything character is king and all plot flows from character. So I really loved being able to just be in a character space for a full story, knowing that it was going to connect, you know, through these other character stories to one larger story. So it was a really interesting way to to write and to conceive of a of a story in like a new a new sort of a new format a little bit. Not that serialization is new, but just in the sense of you know the four stories connecting it to the larger one. So now that you've done it, you think you'll do it again? I don't know. (laughs) It's all very organic, you know, like the idea is there, right? Like the kind of sense of the story is there and then how it is told kind of evolves on the page. And that's how everything is for me. So I definitely hope to, to do something like this again, for sure. Well, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I'm only into book two, but I intend okay. to to keep reading because I'm totally hooked. And I love that I can binge it all together. And with uh, some thunderstorms coming through this week, 
I think this is like the perfect book to be reading in that kind of weather. That's perfect. You're right. It's the perfect (laughs) atmospheric setting for you to finish House of Crows. So Lisa Unger, thank you for your time today. Uh, And thank you for, you know, scaring me a little bit. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you for reading and thank you for having me on. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. In The Damage, defense attorney turned novelist Caitlin Wehrer turns the traditional crime thriller script on its head. Her story about a family that closes ranks around a loved one who is brutally assaulted will have you rethinking what it means to be a victim, as well as keep you guessing until the very end. At its core, we have a story about a victim who's sexually assaulted and the family who does what it thinks it's right to protect their loved one. But what stood out to me, and I think will stand out to a lot of readers right from the start, is that your victim is a man. Why did you want to flip what has become an established thriller script? Yeah, so I think that I almost went into it not even thinking a ton about it. It was that I, I knew that I wanted to have a younger sibling who was victimized in some sort of really personal way that was going to set up the story. And I just immediately was like, I don't feel like writing a female victim, though. And so I said, I'm just going to write a male. I'm going to do my best to do really well by the character and not feel like I'm kind of like, quote, fridging the character, like some people say. But um, but I was like, yeah, I just don't want to write a female. And so I went in being like, well, whatever, I'm just going to write a male. And then as I wrote the story, I realized it was going to change a lot of um, of what the character went through because he was a man. And so I, I kind of fell into it in that sense, just out of out of not wanting to write uh, a younger sister. <laughs> and it's really crazy to think about how hard it is for, for people to accept in the real world and maybe even in fiction that men can be victims of sexual assault. Yeah, absolutely. And that was something that I absolutely knew could happen and does happen. And in my like professional work, I've seen male victims, but at the same time, I still needed to do some, I wouldn't say I, I'm struggling for the word, but it's not clinical research because I wasn't actually in a clinical setting, but I was doing a little bit of research reading um, like textbooks and academic papers just to kind of get a sense of what's different sometimes for men because it's something that isn't talked about, isn't really even acknowledged as happening, and they're under different kind of um, gender tropes and gender pressures growing up in America than women are. And so it's just different um, that it happens. And so the more I worked on it, the more I felt like, you know, maybe this actually in a way deserves to be talked about. And hopefully I'm doing it in a way that it's working for people and, and will maybe do a little bit of good or at least won't do any harm. A lot of your characters from the detective investigating the case to the family to the victim, they all struggle with this idea of what it means to be good and do what's right. And I think a lot of people think when it comes to crime that this is sort of a black and white area. But you show that there's a lot of gray. And is that something you've witnessed firsthand as a practicing attorney? Absolutely. I mean, and 
my my kind of disclaimer is that I came from the defense perspective, and that doesn't really come through a ton in this book outside of Julia's character, occasionally almost like having a fight with her husband um, about how he thinks she's seeing it and maybe how she is seeing it. But that being said, coming from defense, especially because I worked with um, teenagers, I did a lot of juvenile defense, I did see a lot of what you might call gray in the law in terms of, um, not in the law, but in terms of the actual human stories of who was involved in different kinds of crimes and um, and just that they were real people outside of whatever they had done, whether it was something really horrific or something um, or not so horrific, like a lot of the teenage crimes you see are not. <laughs> They're more like property damage and that kind of thing. But I definitely think that that set me up to just see lots of different facets to crimes and crime stories. Well, I think that's great too because I think a lot of these 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 crime stories, these thrillers that we read, they all they they're either from the prosecutor's standpoint or the cops investigating it standpoint, and just you by coming from a different part of that world, I think it's really clear that you have a, a different take on how these things unfold. I think I do, and I would eventually like to write a book that was maybe a little bit more obviously defense sided, but I think that. In this case, it was a really awesome experience for me to work really hard to tell um, the victim side of the story in a criminal case and see what would happen to that family. I love the title because it can mean so many different things for so many different people. How did you land on that? The title was my agent's idea. My agent, Helen Heller, she's just really, really fantastic. And we had we had kind of a hilariously different title for the longest time. So when I was working on it, and when you read the book, you'll say, oh, I kind of get why Caitlin thought that this is, this is what she was using as a working title. But I was using kindness as a working title, really kind of um, focusing on Julia. Um, but it just really didn't tell the reader much about what was happening and it almost was kind of misleading. Like, is this even a crime story? Like, why does it have this title? And so we knew we needed to change it. And then one day Helen called me and said, what about the damage? Can you believe that we, it looks like that title is free. And we were like, uh, yeah, that's it. That's the title. <laughs> yeah. I think if you had stuck with kindness, I don't know that I would have known what I was reading and maybe would have been kind of shocked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's kind of what I was going for. But at the same time, I get that that's not really what sells a book. <laughs> <laughs> so I think my my favorite thing I saw written about your book, and you've been getting a lot of good press. Congratulations on that. Thank you. <laughs> is that even if you're a Law & Order fan who always guesses the ending, you'll be surprised by how this book concludes. And I'll admit, I, I think I know where the train is going, but I've got about 100 pages left. And I think I'm going to love being surprised. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that, um, I mean, my hope at least is that if people do guess the ending, it feels kind of like when you watch a great drama and the ending felt inevitable. That's my hope, like that you either are really surprised or if you knew it, you were like, yeah, this is always how it was going to end. And I don't know if that even makes any sense because you're like, well, how are people being surprised? But I think that if you do guess the ending and you really truly guess everything about the ending, it'll have felt like, yeah, this is always where the train was going to go. <laughs> <laughs> so this being your debut, how's the process been for you? How, how do you feel about now that it's out in the world? It has 
been actually really wonderful. At first, I felt really anxious about it, um, anxious about how it would be received. And then as we kind of were getting closer and closer to pub day, um, I felt like because of the the virtual nature of everything, because we're still kind of recovering from COVID-19. And I've actually had a newborn, like she's five weeks old. And so I was kind of fine to do everything virtually, but it feels a little like I'm just in my house and this thing is happening outside of me and it's it's barely even real. Um, But yesterday I went to my local bookshop and signed a bunch of copies of the book and was talking to the women working there, one of them the owner. And then I've been just getting so many really, really nice reviews um, from people online who are like bookstagrammers and they tag me in their review. And that has made it feel so much more real for me. And so it's actually just been really, really pleasant so far. (laughs) I'm having very little stress about it and more just like waking up in the morning and being like, oh, my gosh, someone else read it and really liked it and wanted me to know. Like it's it's been great. That's incredible. You've brought two new babies into the world. (laughs) (laughs) We've been calling them debut book and debut baby or (laughs) debut book baby, debut human baby. (laughs) So, I I mean, I guess it's kind of premature to ask and you might not have a lot of time with with such a young infant at home. But do you plan on (laughs) writing more? Because I can't wait to read more from you. Oh, my gosh. Yes, absolutely. Um, I have a second book in the works, um, also with Pamela Dorman Books. And um, in the UK, it'll be with Michael Joseph Books. And um, but it's it's so early stages. And I'm I'm honestly quite awful at talking about what I work on. Even now, I'm pretty bad at describing the damage to people. Um, It's just not my skill set. But I am working on something. And right now, I think it's going to have more of a more of a defense perspective, or at least it's going to have more of a trial atmosphere feeling for parts of the book. Whereas this book, well, I'll let you get there, but it's, it's not, you're not really in the courtroom very much. There are some procedural scenes, but a lot of it is happening in the home and this book will be different. You know what? It is okay by me if you can't talk about the book because you obviously can write about it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Writing, I'm fine at. It's talking. It's not always great. We've been talking with Caitlin where the new book is The Damage. Thank you for your time today. And, you know, good luck with everything. You've got a lot on your plate right now. (laughs) Thank you, Lisa. This was really great. If there is anything this past year has taught us, it's that life is fleeting and mostly out of our hands. But if there is one thing we can control, it's how we choose to live our lives. And that's the message author Mary Bly would like you to take away from Lizzie and Dante. It's the first book the Fordham University English professor has written under her own name. Historical romance readers out there, you may know her as her alter ego, Eloisa James. I had the pleasure of chatting with Mary from her summer home in Italy. Lizzie and Dante is a story about a Shakespeare professor who goes to Italy. And it's really a story that comes a lot out of my own life because I am a Shakespeare professor and I am married to an Italian and I have spent every summer for the last 20 years on the island of Elba, which is off the shore of Italy. And that's where the story takes place. And I guess for, you know, the the characters in the story, we have Lizzie, who it's not giving anything away when we say that she's facing a, a daunting cancer diagnosis. 
And she's basically, when she arrives on Elbus, she's decided that that's it. She's done with treatments. She's accepted the fact that she's going to die. And it just seems so counterintuitive because this is a love story that knowing all that about her, that she's decided to let herself fall in love. Well, the thing about Lizzie is that, you know, we should all know that we're going to die, right? We should. And and for me, this story comes out of the moment when a doctor looked at me across the desk and said the biopsy is positive. Right? You never quite feel the same about the time you have left, even though I'm absolutely fine. And let me just say, for those of you who haven't read it, that Lizzie gets to go back to Elba, that she does choose to go into treatment because I don't, I don't think that has to be a secret. Um, but what makes her go into treatment, right? She she's at a moment when she hasn't found a family and and so the treatment feels overwhelming and she just doesn't want to do it anymore because she doesn't like the feeling of circling endlessly and not having any place to land and so when she it's a love story because when she falls in love then it matters right so it's a question of us realizing both that life is limited because we all you know it's, it's like shakespeare right we all have a skull here <laughs> It's one of those things that's hard to remember, but it's true. But no matter what our time is, we can make it meaningful. It's been a while since I read Romeo and Juliet. And I know a lot of the materials around the book kind of say this is an homage to Romeo and Juliet. I like to think that that may be true, but at least there are fewer bodies <laughs> yeah. in, in your story. <laughs> but how, how similar is that classic love story and your modern love story? It's not actually that similar. Um, in other words, I did Ruby, who's in the book, can operate kind of like the nurse if you want. I have Etta, who's a 12 year old girl. And of course, um, Juliet is 13. So I have Lizzie on one hand and I have Etta, who's Dante's daughter on the other. And I just think it's such an interesting time for women, you know, being 12 or in Lizzie's case, you know, being in her, her very early 30s and the, uh, watching life and making big decisions. So that doesn't really line up with Juliet very well. And Dante lives to be a healthy old age, I'm sure, you know. So no, it doesn't line up. But what really interested me was the question of how much time you have. Because if you asked Romeo and Juliet, if you said they fell in love and now you guys only have a couple days, are you sure you want to do this? They would have hopped right off that balcony and into that bedroom because it's a decision, right? Falling in love is always a decision. And I think Romeo and Juliet is the classic it is because it actually shows people making a decision to do this. Romeo is in love with Rosalind one minute and then he decides to fall in love with Juliet. Is this how you teach Romeo and Juliet in, in your, your courses at Fordham University? Yeah, yeah. I, I Because people have been so bored by Romeo and Juliet in high school. And let me say, you don't have to have read Romeo and Juliet for this book at all, at all. But I did want to make a point that I always make in class. We read the balcony scene and everyone's like, oh, woe is me, a rose is a rose. They spend an, a month on it in high school. They say, this is the first time on the English stage when a woman asked a man to marry him, did you notice that? And the whole class is completely blank. They never noticed, you know? Or you say, hey, did you notice that Juliet says that Romeo is a virgin? Total blank. They didn't notice. <laughs> so I teach Romeo and Juliet as things that no one noticed. That is actually very funny in the beginning. 
It's funny that you bring up the balcony scene because as I you you worked that into the book and as I was reading I was like I never knew this was a woman proposing to a man on a stage like I had no idea so I think we can still learn something from you. It's it, you know it's just there's these fun details of where we do that so yet I don't talk about the language very much in the book nothing like that and but I think we all know the main thing right we know the balcony scene it's actually in one of the five items most recognized worldwide, the balcony, right? So all over the world, I think the McDonald's arch is one of the top five as well, but <laughs> Shakespeare made it with the balcony scene. So I didn't want you to have, have to read Romeo and Juliet, but I do think it's fun to think about. It's, it's really fun to think about, you know, if we have limited time, what do you want to do with it? There's a lot of that discussion in the book. There's also she sits down with with someone who's a poet, and I know poetry is very near and dear to your heart. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, she sits down with an old poet who's kind of based on Don Hall, who is my a, a dear friend of my father's and of mine, um, poet laureate of the United States, actually. Uh, but the poem that they actually discussed is by James Wright, who is my godfather. And it's this amazing poem that talks about a chicken hawk circling and looking for home. And it's just that one line, but that line is kind of a thread that goes through the novel because Lizzie is that chicken hawk circling and looking for home. And then Edda's, Edda's story, which is on songbirds, points out Edda's um, writing a, a paper for high school points out that you don't sing, songbirds don't sing unless they land on a branch. So when she begins to sing, she's landed on a branch and she's found home. And that's a mating song, of course. So songs kind of went through the whole thing. So I don't know if you noticed when um, there's a scene with Rockabye Baby, and I wrote two extra lines for that. Um, when birds find their nest, you know, go home. And that's, those are lines that I wrote when my baby, my first baby, Luca, who's now 26, was a baby. But somehow they all fit into this, to the thread of the novel. I have two very young nephews who I help watch and one's an infant and I was rocking him this weekend. I was like, oh, I have to go back to the book because I can't remember what those two extra verses that she put in there were because I love that because when you really listen to the whole song of Rockabye Baby, it, it's not that happy. No. And the, 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 the stanzas you add to it make it a really nice children's lullaby. So I, I do have to go back, mark that page in the book, and then commit it to memory. It's when twilight fa falls and birds find their nests, go home to the one who loves you the best. And I, so I was singing to Luca and I thought, this is so freaking depressing. And I said it to my stepmother and she said, oh, there's some other lines. And she came up with the two that pre prefaced that, but she couldn't remember anymore. So I wrote the last two, when twilight falls and birds find their nest. And then it just worked for this book. So I gave it to Lizzie to sing to Edda because Edda is 12 and she's never had a mother. And so and it's a very dear scene, I think, when, when Lizzie sings to her. For people who don't know, you've written several historical romances under the name, it's Eloisa James. And this is the first book you've published under your, your own name. Why was the time right now to do that? You know, I've actually had, I think, 30 bestsellers as Eloisa, but my historical romances exist in an eternal present. I mean, I bring together two really smart, thoughtful, you know, people. I love writing romance, but it's genre fiction is very much a, a place that exists 
in a certain time. So if it's sci-fi, it exists in the future, or it's mystery, you know, it exists sort of, you know, a police, uh, perfect justice time. And my romances exist in a, in a perfect present, whether it's Regency or Georgian, it doesn't matter. I always have an epilogue where my heroine has a baby because so many women died in childbirth in the 1800s, for example. This is a different kind of book. This is a love story, but it's a love story that's set much more now. We should all know that we don't live in an un, in a in a perfect forever. So we should, but we don't. You know, I love romance, so we can escape. But when we don't escape, I wanted to write a book that that let me talk about some other things that was a little darker, that had a found family in the end, because it's not just Lizzie and Dante. There's also Edda and Gray and Rohan. And by the end, Lizzie has a true family. I'm a great believer in found families. So, so this allowed me to have a, a bigger palette. And um, I like writing a Mary Bly book. It's, it's fun because that's my real name. So it's just different and fun. Do you think that idea of Perfect Forever, that's why like so many his, like adaptations of historical ram romances are so popular right now? Sure, look at Bridgerton, right? Bridgerton's written by my friend, Julia Quinn. And uh, you know, I, I love the, the series of Bridgerton ever since it began, but it's about a huge family that exists you know, that, that we have faith as we're reading it. We know that it's going to end well, or watching it now. We know that there'll be another season with some gorgeous costumes. We, we have faith. And romance brings that. Like the authors, those who read Eloisa James books, have faith that nothing, nothing too sad is, there won't be too many sad thoughts. So when my publishers did wish that I would, you know, publish under Eloisa James, maybe because I have an audience there, to me, it seemed more fair to my readers to give them the chance, um, say, hey, I've written this book, do you want to read it? I think a lot of them are reading it, which is great. I'm, I'm That's great. Have you had feedback from from your, you know, readers who are maybe used to always getting that happily ever after? Yes. I will say, though, that most romance readers read a lot of different stuff. There's a lot of, you know, sort of ideas about romance, like people say to me, oh, but they didn't graduate from high school. No, the average romance reader graduated from college. She's actually, you know, and, and they read a lot of different things and people move in and out of romance in their life. So a lot of women, maybe when they have very small children, will read romance because you really, at this moment, you need to be in an eternal present. You can't think that these precious little babies might not live forever. You want them to live forever. Another time that, for example, that people go into romance is when something really hard is happening in their life. So romance has done very well, um, you know, under, under the pandemic because people write to me and they say things like, you know, my mom was in the hospice and she laughed. And I just want to thank you because your descriptions of the toilet made her laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Georgian toilets are actually no and joke. <laughs> and that's what I was going to say is I've I've heard from other romance writers that they they always hear from audience people say, You got me through a really tough time. Thank you, because it's such a pure, perfect I guess that perfect forever that you talk about and 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 just an escape where you can know that things are gonna work out. Yes. So I think that Lizzie and Don is actually an extension of that because at the moment when we think things are really dark, I mean, I do think it's a book for now because it feels like things are dark. And then 
you've got to remember that at any moment you could turn your life around, you can fall in love, you can create the family. It's there for you, right? It's there for you on the page, but it's also there for you in life. So I'm getting a lot of letters from people who say, oh, I thought I would, but I'm really uplisted or I, I really feel confident. I'm going to find my own Dante or my own Lizzie or my own Rohan. I've got some great letters about Gray and Rohan as well. They're a wonderful couple. They're so much fun to read about as well. And just the dynamic between the two of them. Yeah, I enjoyed writing them a lot. You have also totally added another location to my travel bucket list. I had no idea how gorgeous Elba was. I mean, I think like probably like a lot of Americans, you you know Elba as the place where they sent Napoleon. Mm -hmm. and, you and like, and you think, well, if it were a prison, that it must have been just really awful. But that's totally, that's totally not the case. No, no, it's not. So a lot of places in Italy are like that. But Capri is the fancy island. You know, Jackie O went there every summer and huge behemoth yachts go there. Alba's is sandy and a little rocky. And sometimes it has, you know, jellyfish. And you go there, you day trip from, it's be full of Italians. And it's not, it's a place where you go with kids. You know, you go with kids and you just sit there and bake in the sun and then you have really great food and then you go home and sleep there. You know, there's a few, that sounds wonderful. Love, but it's not fancy and it's not that expensive either. So that's why in Italy, people are traditional. So my husband's family went there every summer in July. So we took our kids there every summer in July. Then you go to the mountains in August because the beach becomes too hot. So we took our kids to the mountains every summer as well. Luckily, we're both professors, so we had time off. But I do think Elba's a wonderful place. And the exile places in Italy are actually have not been looked at because I just went to the town, which I can't remember what it's called at the moment, where Machiavelli was exiled back in the days of the Medici. And it was gorgeous. It was absolutely beautiful. And he obviously had a great time. I think he should have. Yeah, I don't feel so bad for either one of them now, knowing how, how beautiful their sunsets were and, and everything else that they got to enjoy. Right, right. Think of Napoleon with this gorgeous, you know, curvy, naked woman over his bath. I mean, it's not Versailles. But... So can we expect more books under your real name? I'm thinking about it. The book took me four and a half years to write. So... I, you know, because I'm a professor, I mean, I'm, I'm actually the chair of English at Fordham. And so, uh, and then I, I have my Eloisa James career. And I think in a way that a book like this might take a long time to write every time. And I think that a Mary Bly book probably will be something that happens slowly. But I am thinking about it. And I am getting a lot of letters. And I could tell you right now, I'm probably not going to write Edda's story. So. <laughs> Well, however long it may take, I do look forward to if you if you s sit down and start writing one under your, your own name. In the meantime, people can enjoy Lizzie and Dante. Mary Bly, thank you so much for bearing through a few technical difficulties at the top of this interview and, and joining me from your beautiful vacation in Italy. Thank you. This has been a real pleasure. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we chat with flight attendant turned author TJ Newman, whose debut thriller will keep you at the edge of your seat as you turn every single page. I am not kidding. 
Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. You can also catch up with any episodes you may have missed. There are quite a few. This is Chapter 189 in the Odyssey app or at WCBS880.com slash books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.